Welcome to the Good Christelphian Talks podcast. I'm Levi. And I'm Chris. Thank you so much for joining us this week. On this podcast, we select one talk a week to help each one of us get the Bible in our daily newsfeed. We post at the start of each week for you to listen with a short intro beforehand to kind of set the stage for the talk you're about to hear. And now, let's hear more about this week's talk. For this week, we're listening to an exhortation that was given by Brother Harry Tennant back in 1985 at the Emu Park Bible School. Uh, This is an exhortation he gave, and from kind of listening to the opening bit, it sounds like it's probably at the end of the week of the Bible School that uh, he has been teaching at. Uh, The topic of this exhortation is the angel of his presence, and Brother Harry is talking about the angel that shepherded the nation of Israel as it left Israel and then traveled through the wilderness before it returned to the land, the special angel that sort of guided Israel during its time until it ceased to be a nation. This angel is described as being the angel of his presence, which, as Harry mentions, literally means the angel that saw God's face. And he is talking about this uh, and using the example of this angel that is guarding Israel and shepherding it through as an example for us, as an encouragement for us, because through Christ we are able to be part of that family, part of Israel, and in turn able to be shepherded and guarded by this angel of his presence as well. Uh, Talking about the angel that, you know, is in the pillar of smoke and fire and, and guarded over Israel as it traveled. This was a an exhortation that was sent in as a recommendation after we had posted the He is Able exhortation by Brother Harry as well, and just found this to be a very similar and very encouraging one, uh, especially in the crazy times that we're living through right now, that the angel of his presence that was guarding over the nation of Israel, and in turn the angels that are shepherding us now, are still there, and something that can can be a source of encouragement and, and strength for us, uh, even as you're going through difficult times, I know a lot. There are situations where people have uh, have lost work or um, are having to worry about about the health and safety of them or their families or loved ones. So uh, I thought this was a really good exhortation from from Brother Harry, just about talking about how this angel that shepherded Israel and the nation of Israel needed to have a confidence and a trust in God because they had this amazing uh, shepherd that was watching over them. And in turn, through Christ's sacrifice, we have access to the same protection and faith that the nation of Israel did and at some times did and didn't have, but in turn we should do the same. Uh, I know for a lot of us we're meeting digitally and not able to be together, and from talking to some people there have been some concerns about the verse talking about that forsaking not the assembling together of yourselves, and where a few of us together are gathered together, his angels are there with us. But I feel very confidently that God's angels are watching over us now, and in turn as we are gathered together digitally, whether it's on Sunday or during the week for, for different activities, that just in the same way, uh, his angels are gathered together and watching over us and, and keeping us all safe. This exhortation, like I mentioned, was a recommendation that was sent in after Brother Harry uh, and his exhortation on He is Able, and I really enjoyed it, and I wanted to be able to share it with everyone. It was a good encouragement, um, and wanted to get a few more exhortations on the podcast. Uh, we'll be continuing to try to get some of those uh, additional ones posted. I've got a couple more that I've been listening to uh, to get them added to there, so if you need an exhortation to be able to pull from, you're not able to live stream those will be available for you. We'll make sure that in the title it starts with the word exhortation before it says the name of the brother and the topic of the class for you to be able to find quickly. There's lots of other resources as well for you to be out there. Different ecclesias I know here in Southern California are doing different events that you can participate in uh, through Zoom or other video uh, means. 
uh, as well as things that are being posted on the Tidings magazine. As always, thank you for listening. I hope everyone is being able to stay safe and healthy, and we will all get through this together. With that, I will turn it over to Brother Harry Tennant for his exhortation on the angel of his presence. My beloved brethren and sisters, when the children of Israel made their long journeys through the wilderness, God cared for them in a variety of ways, some seen and some unseen. And they were all evidences of his love and mercy and tenderness, his consistency, and his desire to bring them finally into the land of promise. They'd started with the pillar of cloud before they crossed the Red Sea, which at night was a pillar of fire, so they were never in darkness. It was as though they had a great column of light How high it stretched, we're not told. But it rose right from their camp and ascended toward heaven. And this long light of God then shed its radiance over the whole of the camp. And at the same time, there was on the other side of that great pillar, you remember, total darkness so far as the Egyptians were concerned. Total darkness. So that on the one side there was darkness and they dwelt in the land of the shadow of death. And on the other side there was light. It was that which God had ordained from the beginning, that the children of Israel should have light in their dwellings. And now he was making it manifest outwardly as well. And it's like this, as you know, in our own lives as we journey toward the kingdom of God. There are evidences that are visible and there are evidences that uh, we shall never see but are assured of nevertheless. We spent a whole week or more together, a time of uh, very profound love and friendship and understanding around the word of God. Some of us came here not altogether with very great enthusiasm. Perhaps we had to come because our parents were bringing us. Or perhaps we thought, well, I'll give it another chance. And there were those who came sadly because the last time they came, they came with husband or wife, now dead. And therefore, that, that inevitably, there would be memories of, of a kind that they didn't particularly wish to revive. There were those who came because they had responsibilities to bear, things to do. All those who made arrangements for us and hoped that they would work. It's no easy matter coping with 250 or more people. Even feeding them or just making sure that there's some kind of regularity of procedure is no easy matter. And you can be sure that there have been nights when those who've arranged things haven't slept very long 
in trying to work out for our comfort all the things that have taken place. They seem to take place naturally, that there is a president and that there is a pianist and that the place is open and there is light and there's a table and there's bread and there's wine. But everything requires to be arranged. Nothing occurs naturally. And these were their evidences to us of their care. And as the week progressed, we discovered, in fact, that um, we were not just 250 people coming together like little separate units coming to a place and then breaking up again and coming together and breaking up. We discovered, in fact, that we were a family. And we found that there were clusters of us together. We found that there were people to whom we could talk quite naturally, although we'd never seen them before. It looked to, almost looked as though they'd been waiting for us and we'd been waiting for them all this time. And when we get together, we start off as though we had always been brothers or sisters, always been friends. And this is one of the marvels of our fellowship. When you discover, if the Lord remains away, that were you to meet again, you could take up just from where you left off, as though nothing had happened at all. And so, when we arrived, that's just how it was with Brother Malcolm and Sister Margaret, just as though it was yesterday, and we were able to say hello. And you don't have to say it with a great fuss, that that's the interesting thing, because it's deeper than that. It's not something that is, that is there on the top and, uh, you know, it's got to be made manifest in some very special way. Love always lies deeper and is stronger and is not easily disturbed. There will be some of us who are, even now, a little unhappy for whatever reason. That's understandable. Um... This is a difficult matter in a way because we're dealing with the different shapes and sizes. When you go down to the beach here, all that you see generally are shells and certain sea life. <clears throat> but as you go to the beach in certain other parts of Australia, no doubt, and certainly when you go to the beach in Britain, you discover that in certain places the whole place is filled with pebbles. You can hardly see the sand for pebbles. In fact, one of the best sandy beaches in Britain goes through an annual cycle where, for one large part of the year, it is entirely, entirely covered with pebbles. And then in the summer, they all disappear and they're sucked away by the great rise and fall of the sea. And there is just sand there. But the interesting thing about the pebbles is that they've all been shaped. They've all been shaped. There are none of them any longer with great jagged corners sticking out at all. They've gradually been worn until finally they're able to work together. Indeed, if they were able to know, they would know that the sand on which they rest was once a pebble like them. And that over a process of time, they've learned how to bed down and to be one and to appear as though they're a carpet, when once, in fact, they were just all kinds of rocks of all kinds of different shapes. Now, the process of being shaped is painful. Now, we don't need to be shaped. We can go out and we can be just a great big angular block in our own place, if we want to be that. And there are some people who go through life like that. You hear reports, don't you, on the radio that this, this gunman or 
whatever is still at large. He can't fit into anything at all. He's going to do his thing all the time, whatever it costs other people, and finally, what it costs him because he probably finishes up dead. Because he's a misfit. Now, a week together helps us to get rid of some of those edges. And uh, we'll have discovered that, and part of the process is painful. If you come to this 63rd chapter of Isaiah, you just see that there are some very interesting comments by God. It's our reading, as you know, for the day. Uh, daily readings at the moment are, are really supplying us with wonderful things. These closing chapters of Isaiah are bringing everything to a climax. Everything. All kinds of songs are being sung of Zion. You can see all the anticipations. It's though, as though all the walls of Zion are there and there, there are watchmen on who are looking out and things are happening. And then, when we come to the 63rd chapter of Isaiah, out from the east, like we were looking at yesterday, out from the east there appears this figure. Who is this that cometh from Edom? with crimson garments from Bosra. All right, so Edom, Bosra, Idumea, that's that stretch that runs right down to the Gulf of Aqaba. It's the part of the land that, uh, that was Esau's land, Esau meaning red. And here coming up is, is described pictorially here, not a real person at all. This is, this is, uh, this is describing um, a representative figure coming up. And he's not just dressed in, uh, in white and glowing and glorious, but his garments are all splashed. They're all marked in crimson. But he's marching in the greatness of his strength. So whoever's coming towards Zion from Edom and from Bosra is now strong and majestic. And a savior, it says, I that speak in righteousness, mighty to save. So we're, we're coming to the, to the end of the book and Zion's glad morning is coming and it's going to arrive by, by someone who will sweep up. Now I'm not going to go into the detail of this today. I did part of that yesterday. This is the great journey from the south of the Lord and the saints who are with him. I know that it says there in verse 3, and of the people there was none with me. Uh, the word their people is not just saying of the people, that is of the Jews, or of my own people there was none with me. It's a plural word. That is the word of the peoples. It's the word for Gentile nations, the goyim. There was none of those with me, he said. And therefore I had to trample them down in mine anger, verse 6. I will tread down the peoples. Still the same plural word that is there. And then suddenly, inspiration through Isaiah draws a curtain over all that, over all that's taking place. It's the day of vengeance, notice, it says in verse 4. The day of vengeance is in mine heart, and the year of my redeemed is come. My year of redemption is come. So it's the climax of all things, and it's going to be wrought by God through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he just says in verse 7, I will make mention of the loving kindnesses of the Lord and the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord hath bestowed on us and 
the great goodness toward the house of Israel that he hath bestowed on them according to his mercies and according to the multitude of his loving kindnesses. As though the scene has all changed and suddenly the prophet says, I'll talk about the Lord and all that he has done. And what he's saying, in fact, is this dramatic scene that's at the beginning of the chapter by which all history is finally to be wound up when the Lord's sword is made known over Idumea, as it says in the 34th chapter of Isaiah. When all that really is taking place, what God is working out is not nations and Idumea, and it's not the Arabians, it's not, nothing to do with that at all. That's the, that's the outer mechanism by which things are being brought to their final position. What God is doing is to redeem his people. And that redemption will be based on an ancient redemption. It will be based on the redemption of the children of Israel from the wilderness. And so he says in verse 9, In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. In all their affliction, he was afflicted, and the angel of his presence saved them. Now, was God really afflicted? Is it possible for God to be afflicted? That's what it says, isn't it? Now, I think this is telling us something about God. Not telling us physical things about God. That God has our kind of being. It's not that at all. There's something far deeper here. Let me just put it in the form in which uh, we could all understand it. There are times when we are uh, children and young people that we grievously injure our parents. And we don't know. It isn't that we've done anything. It isn't that, that, that a young man in his anger has got up and hit his father or anything like that at all. There's something far deeper, so deeply penetrating and painful that it's beyond description. And it happens. Now, that's because there is a relationship that in some way is disturbed. In the same way that we can give exquisite joy to our parents without knowing we're doing that either. Exquisite joy to them. Because they've got, they've got a relationship that's stretched over years of time. That as we got here, little children, little babies, who will never remember that they came to Emu Park this year, they'll know nothing at all about it. Except that somebody will tell them later on. And later on they'll say, my first emu park was 1985. But those children begin to build into the lives of parents and of brothers and sisters. Because it isn't confined. It, these feelings are not just confined to father and mother. They're, they're because of the whole. The whole can be affected. That's exactly what this breaking of bread is about. That the whole is affected by the part. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ was the sum total of all the parts. And therefore, he carried all the suffering. So as they went through their tests within the wilderness, the Lord himself was involved. His heart was with them. And it says here in verse 9 that the angel of his presence saved them. It doesn't just say his angel saved them, right? That would have, we could have understood that if it had just said, and his angel saved them. It doesn't say that. It says the angel of his presence saved them. The word there for presence is the word for face. That's the word. So the angel that went with them was the angel that stood before the face of God. As though he were God's face. That's what Gabriel said, isn't it? I am Gabriel and I stand in the presence of the Lord. So the angel that went with the children of Israel was a particular angel. It was a, an angel close to God. Whatever that means, just to be close to God as an angel. But there are angels who are closer to God than others. There must be. As there are stars that differ in glory, so there are angels that differ in all that they have to do. And God selected a particular angel. And more than that, you remember, just keep your finger in Isaiah, but come to Exodus chapter 23. Just see how it was described. This particular angel, the angel of his presence. There in chapter 23 and at verse 20 of Exodus we read, Behold, I send an angel before thee to keep thee in the way and to bring thee into the place which I have prepared. Beware of him and obey his voice. Provoke him not, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if thou shalt indeed obey his voice and do all that I speak, then I will be an enemy unto your enemies and an adversary unto your adversaries. For mine angel shall go before thee and bring thee in unto the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, uh, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will cut them off. So the Lord was preparing an angel that was able to act as though he were God himself. He bore the very name of God. He had the power to forgive sin. He had the power to pardon. But the purpose of the angel was that he would go before thee. Notice that. She wasn't going behind. Or coming up later on. I'm sending him before you to keep you, so I don't want to lose you. The purpose of my giving this angel is not this of reproof at all. That's, that's incidental. What I'm trying to do is to go before you and to keep you and to bring you into the place which I've prepared. So that's the angel's work, and that's what the angel's been told to do. No more, no less than that. And all these other things are involved in it. And so this angel of the Lord is the angel that proceeds with them, the one with whom Moses speaks from time to time. He's the one that is the Lord. The very, bears the very great name of God himself, the angel of his presence. 
And so that's the angel that's in Isaiah 63, to which Isaiah is now making reference. Because if this angel had this particular task of going before and keeping and bringing, then he'll do it again. If God wants that done, he will do it with his redeemed people, not just the nation of Israel, but with all the people who belong to him. You see, when they were in the wilderness, there they were with the pillar of cloud, but when it moved, they had to move. And it says if it was there two days only and moved, they had to move. And if it moved in the night, they had to move in the night. Whenever the pillar moved, they moved. And if it stayed for a month or two months or a year, they stayed. But if it stayed for 24 hours and moved, they had to move with it because that was the angel of God's presence. And that was the means by which God made manifest to them that he was with them. And he filled it with his glory from time to time so that instead of just being a pillar of cloud or a pillar of fire, it suddenly radiated with immense glory. And within that great column was the angel. It says, from time, it says in, the, in the matter of crossing the Red Sea that the angel of the Lord looked out almost as though it was like a tower for the angel, a watchtower. And you could see the greater distance from that point. And so it was a protective tower for those for whom it was leading. It wasn't needed. An angel didn't need a tower. But for those who were looking, it was a moment of comfort. And it finally came to rest, as you know, over the Ark of the Tabernacle. In Exodus, in Isaiah 63 then, let's just take comfort from what it says about this. Because we haven't got less than this, have we, on our journey to the kingdom? The Lord is still with us in all the ways in which he was with them. Not manifest miraculous ways, but ways which are just as sure <clears throat> to go before and to keep and to bring us in. <clears throat> so it says in verse 9, in all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. <clears throat> in his love and in his pity, he redeemed them. It was all done by love. <clears throat> not, not some other means of doing things. That angel <clears throat> was a messenger of the love of God. And so here in the Lord Jesus Christ, in all their, in all our affliction, he was afflicted. <clears throat> he is, <clears throat> as it were, the presence of God made manifest to us, isn't he? <clears throat> and he came to save us, and he came in love, and he came in pity to redeem. Those are the things that are here. In his pity, that's compassion. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. And in his love, the Lord did not send his love upon you because you were, or choose you because you were more than other people, says the Lord. You remember that marvelous verse in Isaiah, when, as it were, you're looking for a reason why God loved you. And God says, it wasn't for any of those things at all. I didn't love you because you were more than other people or more righteous than other people. And then he makes that wonderful statement, which is the perfect description of that love which is given the title of agape, love. He says, I loved you 
because... And then you want to write down what the reason is. And the reason is, I loved you because I loved you. That was the reason. It wasn't that it was in you, it was in me. I loved you just because I loved you. And don't ask for reasons. This is being God. This is what God is. And therefore, since it isn't based on reasons, those things that might have been in us, which might fail, could then take away our love, and it would disappear. But God's love is because he loves, and therefore it's constant. It can't be removed. It's, it's, a, it's an undiminishing love. It's known in the Revised Standard Version as his steadfast love. It's chesed, that loving kindness of the Lord. And there it is. That's how the Lord God loves us. The last time I was here, and this is one of the painful memories, uh, I went to Keppel Bay, I remember, and my companion for part of the time when we arrived on the island was Brother Bob Hosey. And those of us who remember him, remember him with love and this his kindly affection. He was dead within months. I remember speaking to him. He said that he was going to go from Emu Park Bible School with uh, Edith, his wife, and they were going to going to make their journey further north just to visit brethren and sisters in isolation. That's what he was going to do. But he, uh, on the island, he said, uh, I'd like to show you something. So he took me, and as a matter of fact, one of you here has got a picture of this. He took me up a, a rise of a hill, and just beyond the rise of the hill, there were rocks. In fact, there was an isolated rock. And on this isolated rock, there was a, a sea eagle's nest. And the eagle was bringing in food for the young. But it was quite a sight for the simple reason that you didn't look up to it. You looked down and you could see it. And it was isolated and all separate. And in this, uh, in this 63rd chapter of Isaiah, it says, And he bare them and carried them all the days of old. Deuteronomy says, he kept him as the apple of his eye, as an eagle stirreth up the nest, fluttereth over her young, spreadeth abroad her wings, and taketh them, and beareth them on her wings. So the Lord alone did this for Israel. And I shall never forget the sea eagles and Brother Bob, because they've got this link for me with the word of God. When the eagle teaches its young to fly, it's got a whole variety of means. I remember climbing a mountain in uh, South Africa, and uh, at 6,000 feet, the brother and I were accosted by eagles. They came down and they screamed at us and told us to go no further, because above them, above us, they built their nest. And they were determined that we shouldn't encroach into their airspace. But their, their little one, little ones, they have a, they've got to teach them that these great dizzy distances 
for other birds, and certainly for humans, have got to be coped with as a bird. And so, as the time arrives, the mother eases the bird out of the nest with her wings. All mothers have to do this with their children. It's the painful process. And then the little one comes to stand on the edge of the nest. And it's on a crag overlooking just space. That's all. And then the mother gives the final nudge with her wing. And the bird is off. It's been thrown over the edge of the nest. And now it must cope with a thousand, two thousand feet of space, not having done so before. And it tries its wings and tries to support itself and discovers it's losing height. And it tries harder and holds and drops. And then it appears that the bird itself is going to go crashing right down. And then suddenly, from the nest, the mother moves in one gigantic sweep right down underneath and picks the bird up on, the, on her wing and brings it back and restores it to where it was until finally she'll teach it that there'd be no need for her ever to come underneath and support her. And God said to Israel, I did that with you. I kept doing it all the time. I took you on my wings and I bear you and I carried you through. And God says that's what's happening in Isaiah chapter 63 and it's happening to you and to me. There are times we don't know. There are times when it looks just like an awful, awful distance and we're going to fall and crash and be smashed beneath. And then God holds us in ways that uh, are all unseen to us. But nevertheless, he holds us and assures us and reassures us and puts us back in the nest and we know we're there and that we're safe. And God does that for those who are his children. This matter of the angel of his presence, uh, just let's follow one little thought that we ought to clear up and, be, and then uh, come to our breaking of bread. It says there in verse 10, but they rebelled and vexed his Holy Spirit. As a matter of fact, this verse ought to clear away so much misunderstanding. Uh, it's the way one reads two words, isn't it? Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. And what the Lord God has is Holy Spirit. It isn't just the Spirit set apart for a special purpose. That's, uh, that has a uh, an application. But it's not that. It's not just that. What God is trying to accomplish is a holy purpose. It's not a question of discussing whether he's doing it by power or not by power. That's not what is involved. It's it's that God is trying to bring about a holy purpose, that he shall have a holy people for himself. And there are those, and there were those, who rebelled against God's holiness. They didn't want to know. They didn't want to conform. And they grieved his Holy Spirit. All that he was doing by holiness, wanting to accomplish, they, they didn't want. 
It was like yesterday's reading in Matthew, wasn't it? When, when in the readings there it said, how shall not your father know how to give good gifts to those that are his children? And there are those who don't want his good gifts. And that grieves God. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And God is grieved that that which is his holiness, people should say, I don't want it, Lord. Oh, I don't want it. I'd rather have unholiness. I'd rather go my own way. Well, you see, since God's Spirit fills everywhere, in the end, there'll be no place for unholiness. A man can't fight against God and win. God's given him free will by which to choose for the time being. But in the end, in the end, only those who are holy will be there. A holy people. We sang it this morning in that hymn. We just sang about a holy people. And that's what God is bringing here to this table of the Lord. A holy people for himself. That's what he's trying to accomplish by the Lord Jesus Christ. Just a, a final reference in Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9. We came into this chapter a little earlier in the week. Uh, it says there in verse 24, For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. And it's still the same word. It is before the face of God for us. That's what, that's what the words are there. It's exactly the same word, presence, that's been running through, now in the Greek, but still it's taking up the idea of the face of God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is in the presence of God. But it says, for us. That's why he's there. That's where God wants him to be. In the Old Testament, it was an angel of his presence. Now it's the Son who is in his presence. The Son who was the face of God. Because we've seen the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. When he was sent out, he was, as it were, because of his character and his work, the presence of God moving. He was Son of Man. He was Son of Mary. He was of our nature. But that which he came to do was to make known the face of God. It was almost as though that which had been in the most holy place and, and was there spoken of in all those things within the most holy place where was the ark and the word of God and where was the mercy seat and the cherubim as though all of those had in character been brought out in the Lord Jesus Christ that we could see the mercy seat which was Christ. Actually see what God was trying to do wanting to do, willing to do. See the word of God there in Christ, contained, as it were, in him, in all that he was doing. And so he was the presence of God, an outpost from God. He was the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire. He was everything, all of it, set out amongst men so that nobody ever after that could ever say that God had not sent out that which was of his own self, that we should know. He was the Son of God that we might know that God was saving us 
keeping us, bringing us in, loving us, pitying us. All these things of Exodus 23 and Isaiah 63 that he might finally bring us into the kingdom of God. He doesn't want to keep us out. That's easy. If in the Garden of Eden, God didn't want to give people eternal life, all he had to do was to take up the garden and get rid of it. And he didn't. He just put a marker there at the door of the garden that there's only one way in, and that way is through the cherubim and the flaming sword. And we're going to remember the man who went that way. And the sword pierced him. But now it's a new and living way that we might have everlasting life. And he's leading us in all that we do. If, if we're only we'll follow step by step and week by week, emu park by emu park, and wherever it is, we put our markers in daily life and we need them. They're signposts on the way. We keep them by photograph, by memory, by diary. I keep a diary every day. And all those are little markers as we go along the way and we can renew them day by day and have faces that we can remember. And those faces are, are like faces from God that God has given to us. We wouldn't have these faces if it were not that we belong to God. We'd have other people. We'd be today doing other things. We're probably like most Australians with a great wadge of newspapers in our house. And finally, cans of beer and the telly and feet up and house filled with smoke and children coming and going and shouting and screaming and doing their own thing and all that will be ours instead of which we've got friendly faces and we're bound together as a family because the angel of his presence has brought us here and brought us within the eagle's nest and got us on the eagle's wings and lifted us high that we might see where God is taking, taking us and finally bringing us what is our hope, our joy our crown of rejoicing, are not even ye in the presence of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming, says Paul, because that presence is going to be revealed. And there's going to be a face of Jesus on earth, which will be, as it were, the face of God made manifest. And that will be a face that will be there in the day of judgment, a discerning face of God in Christ, whereby those who belong to him, as our brother president said, can be welcomed into the kingdom of God. And it says in the book of Jude, now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless in the presence of his glory with exceeding joy to the only wise God. You can't believe it, can you? that he can present us faultless in the presence of his glory. You know, you can have a, uh, something, and you might buy something from somewhere that a man shows you in a shady light, right? You can't quite see it until you take it home and have a look at it and you see that it's all scratched. And the closer you get it to the light, the worse it is. And you look it over until finally you see that the whole thing is all marked and he's a sham, and he's not what he professes to be. But just imagine putting your character under the scrutiny of the glory of God. And God saying, it's faultless. That's what Jude says. Now unto him that is able to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. 
That can only be through Christ. He's the faultless one. And that's not a misreading of Jude. You may say, oh, well, I must look those words up, Brother Harry, because I'm not quite sure that they'll stand anything as strong as that. They'll stand all the strengths. They'll stand it. When you go to to Revelation chapter 14 and you see that redeemed host, what does it say about them? And in their mouth was found no guile, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So it's going to be done. And now that shows that he loves us and pities us, that he wants to save us and to redeem us and to bring us in. And he wants to do it by washing us, cleansing us, teaching us not to grieve his Holy Spirit, these marvelous teachings and fellowship, not to grieve them, but to respond to them so that he might just shape us until finally we shall be the sand on the seashore. A seed which no man can number, or the stars of heaven shining in all their glory, and the Lord will have accomplished his purpose. And we shall see the one through whom he has done it, whom now we remember, that living stone, the stone which the builders rejected, the stone that God has set in Zion, a tried and a true and a precious stone, our Lord himself, on whom we rest, that finally he might make us all together into the temple of the Lord, that the Lord might fill it with his presence, and that all the earth might shine with the glory of the face of God. Thank you for listening to the Good Christadelphian Talks podcast. Please subscribe for new episodes and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever service you are listening from to help people find the show when they search for it. If you enjoyed this talk, share it on social media so other people can find it too. For show notes and links to the talk that you just listened to, visit our show page at anchor.fm slash gct. We want to encourage everyone to share their thoughts from the talk this week on Facebook or Instagram, where we are at Good Christadelphian Talks or on Twitter, where we are at GCT underscore podcast. If you know of a great talk, we want to know about it too. Send a suggestion to goodchristadelphiantalks at gmail.com or message us on any of our social media platforms. Thank you for listening. God bless and talk to you next week.